or your silenced electronic devices, you can open up to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. That's where we are going to be again today. This is really the third in a series of messages from this passage. Let me pray for us again before we start. Heavenly Father, once again, we ask that you would open our hearts and minds to receive from you, from your holy word. As you speak to us, we who are your people, we who have been saved by your grace, speak to us today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So over the last two Sundays, I preached through one of the most important texts in all the New Testament regarding the identity of our Redeemer, what He did to redeem us, and what happened to Him as a result. We saw that the Son of God humbled Himself, becoming a human being, living a perfectly obedient life in this sinful world, and then gave up his life to be our Savior, dying upon the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, for the sins of all who trust in him for our salvation. The result, God highly exalted him. God the Father raised his son from the dead, lifted him up into heaven, seated him at his right hand on his throne, and gave him all power and authority, and gave him the name Lord, the name that is above every name. What a glorious passage that is. Amen? And in my closing last week, I reminded you that this glorious passage, which many believe was an early hymn sung by the early church, was used here by the Apostle Paul as an example or an illustration of what he wants for the church, what he wanted for the church in Philippi and for all the churches that are filled with followers of Christ, even ours. What he wants is unity, unity within the church so that the Christians will be able to effectively work together side by side for the sake of the gospel. That was Paul's main focus and emphasis in this passage. And this is the context for this entire section of Paul's letter to the Philippians. It started back in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, where Paul states that this is his goal for him. Look back at that. Philippians 1, 27. Paul writes, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or an absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So he wants our lives to be lived in such a way, the manner of our lives, that we do not hinder 
the gospel going forth. He wants us to live in such a way that we are standing firm on his promises. We are energized by his spirit, empowered by his spirit. And we are with one mind, in one accord, working together, striving together, side by side for the faith of the gospel. This is Paul's desire. This is God's desire for his church, if you will. To accomplish that goal, Paul tells the church that they must live in a manner that will promote unity in the church. And he outlines that manner in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Let me remind you of that. Paul writes, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. No big deal, right? Live in humility. Consider others more important than ourselves. Do nothing from selfishness or selfish ambition. Do not think more highly of ourselves than we ought. No big deal, right? Prone to wonder, right? Prone to leave the one I love. We're, we're still sinners. We still have this selfish sin nature in our flesh. We still think more highly of ourselves than we ought. So these are, these are challenging admonitions from the Apostle Paul. But this is the key. It's the key. So Paul reminds them then of the supreme example of the very Son of God. He becomes the example of self-denial, of self-giving, self-sacrifice, and selfless love in putting the needs of others before himself. Jesus didn't need to become a human being and come to this earth for himself. He's God. He's the creator of all things. He's eternal. He did it so that we could be saved from ourselves, from our sin nature and our sins, so that we could be set free. And he becomes the greatest example of sacrifice, of humility, and obedience. It is so important to see that, that Christ lived in perfect obedience. So Jesus is our Savior. Jesus is our Lord. Jesus is also our example. And we're to follow that example in living for him, in living out our salvation to accomplish his purposes. So in our passage for today, Paul will return to his present concern for the church. His concern is for their need for unity 
in obedience for the sake of Christ and his gospel. And if they will do so, it will result in rejoicing. Rejoicing for them and rejoicing for Paul. So if you're able, let's stand for the reading of our text. I'm going to be reading Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. These are the very words of God. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you might be blameless and innocent, children of God who without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. May God bless the reading of his word to us. You may be seated. So we're going to focus on these verses that contain three sentences. And those three sentences contain three admonitions from the Apostle Paul as to how we, followers of Christ, should live our lives as members of his church. And it starts in verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We are called to work out our salvation. The therefore refers back to all that Paul has just told them, all that Christ did for them. And my beloved reminds them of Paul's love for him, for them. Paul's love for the church in Philippi. And so, based on Christ's love for them and Paul's love for them, he appeals to them to live lives of obedience before God. To live as they did when Paul himself was with them. Specifically, they are to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. Now, in Paul's view, faith in Christ is ultimately expressed as obedience to Christ. As we are devoted to doing that which pleases and glorifies him. So, if we profess to be a follower of Christ, then we should live lives of obedience to Christ because he is not only our Savior, he is also our Lord and our King. Amen? And obedience in this case takes the form of living out your salvation in your relationships with others in the church. 
He's not telling us individually to work out our salvation. I can't add anything to my own salvation. My salvation is accomplished by Jesus Christ, by him alone. What he's asking the church to do is collectively to work out their salvation as his people, as the body of Christ. To live out your salvation in your relationships with others in the church. In other words, Paul is encouraging them to work it out with others so that they are all living out the salvation that Christ has provided for them. And note this, he says that they should do it with fear and trembling. This indicates how important this is for Paul. We're not to live out the gospel casually or lightly, but we're to live it out as those who understand who God is, who it is that we serve, that he is holy, he is righteous, he is worthy, he is. And we are to live in fear and trembling, not of judgment, but as Pastor Don said, fear and trembling of disappointing him or not fulfilling the purpose for which he saved us for, which is to glorify him while we're here on this planet. We're going to have thousands of years to glorify him in his presence, and we all look forward to that, amen? But right now, we're to live in such a way that we bring glory to him and we bring others to him. The only thing we can do better on this planet than we can do in heaven is to be a light to bring others to Christ, to bring others to salvation, to be his instruments. And so he wants his people to live out the gospel in community, in true community. Our God, who has done so much to save us, is an awesome God, amen? Thus, living out the salvation that he has provided should be done with a sense of holy awe and reverence before God. We really should have an overwhelming desire to live lives of obedience, lives that please and glorify him. And if you are a true child of God, you will have that desire. Now, we live it out imperfectly, obviously. We're still sinners. We still stumble. And sometimes fall. But by the grace of God, God has given us a new heart, a new desire to live for him. Amen? Now, how are we able to do this? Well, Paul makes it clear it is by God empowering us to do so. We're to work it out and we can do so because it is God who works in us and in us collectively both to will and to work for his good pleasure now this does not mean that god is doing it for them understand that it's not let go and let god it's live in obedience as god empowers us to do so 
We cannot live in obedience without the power of the Holy Spirit empowering us to do so. Nor would God want us to. Why? Because he needs to get the glory for it, not you and me. I'm not able to do what I'm able to do because it's me, but because of Christ in me. It's not I. It's Christ in me. So this doesn't mean that God is doing it for them, but that God supplies the power for them to do so. And it begins with our minds being renewed by the power of his word so that we are no longer conformed in our thinking and will to the ways of this world or to our old ways of thinking. We know what is pleasing to God and we have the desire in our new heart to live accordingly. And we have the power to do so by the indwelling power of his spirit. So that we now desire to live for Christ. And we desire to live out his plan for us, both individually and collectively as his true community. And to do so for his good pleasure. So, in what specific areas do we need to live this way? Well, in the context of these verses, it is in our relationship to others in the church. And again, the focus is on unity and working together for the sake of the gospel. Unity is not easy. Think about it. How much unity do we see in the culture in which we live? How much unity do we see in our government, in our Congress, in our Supreme Court? How much unity do we see in our communities? Right? So unity is not easy. So how do we attain that? Well, look what he says in verse 14. Do all things, all means what? Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. I think maybe he was thinking about this generation instead of the one he was writing to. <laughs> Among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. It starts with dealing with grumbling or complaining and questioning or arguing or criticism. Those are actually sins. Sins that cause disunity and damage the effectiveness of the church. Grumbling or disputing. Grumbling again can be Synonymous with complaining and disputing with questioning, arguing, or criticism. I was once told by a brother in the church that his spiritual gift was the gift of 
criticism. I didn't even know how to respond in the moment. Paul tells them that they're to do all things without these attitudes and actions. Because those attitudes and actions reflect selfishness, rivalry, and conceit. The exact opposite of the humility that we are called to live out. Those who persist in complaining and criticism are not being obedient to Christ and his gospel. And they are rejecting Paul's admonition to live with one mind and to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. Paul's desire is for the church to live in harmony harmony and unity of mind and heart, in humility, thinking of others more highly than ourselves, that we may be seen by others to be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in our behaviors towards one another. This is not referring here specifically to your own heart or your own behaviors, say, in the privacy of your own home. This is looking at our behaviors towards one another in the church. Paul wants unity in the church because it's missing in the world. Therefore, if it's seen in the church, people are going to notice The only way it's possible is that there truly is a God, there truly is a Savior, there truly is a Holy Spirit who is bringing this unity. So Paul wants the unity of the church to shine forth to the glory of God and to provide an opportunity for the gospel to go forth as well. That's why their conduct in relationship to one another is to be blameless so that they will be seen as children of God, because only true children of God could live in such harmony and unity. Only true children of God could live in humility towards one another, because it's not natural. It's supernatural. Paul goes on to say that when we do live in this way, we will appear as lights in the world. In stark contrast to the darkness of this crooked and twisted world in which we live, a world that has no unity, a world in which every person is after what pleases them, what makes them happy, their dreams, their goals. We instead come together And we put that aside so that together we can build the kingdom of God here on this earth. That becomes our focus. That is the source of our unity. And when we do that, people will notice. This echoes what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. When he told his followers in Matthew 5.14, you are are the light of the world. 
And then a couple verses later, he tells them, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus wanted us, his followers, to live in humble obedience to God and to shine as a result, thereby bringing glory to God. And this we can do by holding fast to the word of life or the word that brings life. Once again, I believe a reference to the gospel. The gospel is the word that brings life. Paul describes it as the power of God for salvation to all who believe. And we know the gospel is the message that all have sinned and therefore all need a Savior, and that God sent His Son to be that Savior. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. This is the gospel. And every one of us need not only to hear it, but to believe it. And to call upon Jesus Christ for our salvation, for the forgiveness of our sins. And when we do, not only does he cleanse us of our sins, but he adopts us into his family, making us brothers and sisters in Christ. And what a glorious thing that is, amen? To be a part of the family of God joint heirs with Jesus as we travel this sod, right? Part of the family, the family of God. And we are blessed. And Paul tells us to hold fast to the word of God, to the gospel of God's grace, because there we will find unity. There we will be encouraged to humility. There we will shine for Christ and be equipped to bring the light of the gospel into the darkness of a sin-filled world. We're to hold fast to the word of God as we look forward to the day of Christ when Christ shall return in power and in glory and reward his followers who have lived for him as lights in this world. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, I would say. But we know why he has not yet come. His delay is so that we can be those lights. So that our family, friends, neighbors can also come to experience the salvation that we have been given before Jesus returns. So Paul ends this section with two verses one sentence that speaks to rejoicing even in the midst of suffering. Look at verses 17 and 18 with me. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul ends this long section of admonitions to the church by once again acknowledging the suffering that they were experiencing. 
He had already acknowledged that at the beginning of this section in chapter 1, verses 29 and 30. Now he refers to it once again. And he names it as the cause for his rejoicing and for their rejoicing. The metaphor that he is using in these verses mentions a drink offering as well as a sacrificial offering. And as Pastor Don explained earlier, these are drawn from the Jewish sacrificial system. As the burnt offering was being offered by the priest on the altar, there would be offered a drink offering poured either on top or alongside of the burnt offering. Paul here is referring to the present suffering that both he and the church in Philippi are experiencing at the hand of the Roman Empire. He pictures his imprisonment as the drink offering that goes along with their burnt offering, their present struggles, and their persecution in Philippi. The Bible's really honest with us about the fact that those who desire to live for Christ will be persecuted. Paul knew that this suffering was to be expected. That in fact it had been foretold by Jesus. That those who followed him would be persecuted. And would suffer as he did. In some cases even unto death. In Paul's letter to the Romans. He indicated that such suffering shows that they are indeed children of God. In Romans chapter 8. Verses 16 through 18, we read these words. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. If children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. For I consider the sufferings of this present time not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul acknowledges that living for Christ is not easy. And that when we do live for Christ, there will be persecutions as a result of that. But that this suffering is not even worthy to be compared with the glory that awaits us, with what God has prepared for each and every one of his children. Paul is referencing to the suffering that he's experiencing and that they are experiencing. And here we are called to suffer with Christ in order that we may also be glorified with him. Paul reminds us that these momentary sufferings are light, momentary afflictions compared to the eternal weight of glory that awaits us. And so, rejoice. Rejoice in suffering? Yes. Because that indicates both to us and to the watching world that we are indeed children of the Most High God because our Savior suffered as well. 
and we are following in his footsteps. So rejoice in your sufferings. Rejoice that you've been counted worthy to share in the sufferings of Christ. We're told to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Words written by the Apostle Paul in prison. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Now note this. We're not rejoicing in our circumstances. We're rejoicing in the Lord. Amen? We're rejoicing in the Lord. The one who controls our circumstances. The one who's able to cause all things to work together for good. To those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Amen? All things. And we've seen that over and over again, haven't we? Praise be to God. So this is not just making the best of a bad situation. This has to do with true faith in the love that God has already shown to us in saving us, in sanctifying us, and using us for his own glory. We know that our future is secure in him, and that is cause for rejoicing. Amen? No matter what our present circumstances. So in this passage... Paul calls the members of the church in Philippi to work out their collective salvation, to live without grumbling or questioning, and to rejoice in their suffering. And through these things, the world will take notice that these people are different. And by the grace of God, we'll have the desire to experience what we're experiencing. And that will draw them to Christ. So through this letter, preserved for us by God, God is calling us to do likewise. We're being called to live not for ourselves, but for Christ. And we're being called to unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're called to be of one mind, striving together for the sake of the gospel, working together to build Christ's church, and in the process, to shine as lights in this present darkness, bringing glory to Christ and being used by Christ to draw all people to himself. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity for us to rejoice in what you have called us to. Father God, you have saved us, you are sanctifying us, and you have adopted us into your family and made us your people, your church, your light in this world. Father God, even as we prepare to worship you again and we prepare to watch the baptism of three individuals who you have brought to salvation, we rejoice, Father God, in your continuing work in our lives and your continuing work in our church and through our church impacting the lives of others. What a privilege that is, Father God. So I pray that you will help us to live in unity 
and to strive side by side for the sake of your gospel. Help us, Father God, to be a light here in this community. And we pray this for all of your churches. And we give you thanks for it in Jesus' name. Amen.